beautiful people, this is Princess, and you are listening to my favorite show, Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thank you, and please leave a five-star review. See you on the next one. of edification this is a micro episode about a half an hour long and i have dr laura sanger here with us for this episode she is on a mission she's going to be edifying us teaching us breaking down some of the text this is a crazy cool mini episode don't you worry she will be back in the very near future for a longer conversation but for now we are going to get edified I am so excited for this episode. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get right into it. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. Let's go. I have a special returning guest here for our Ease of Edification episode. It is an honor to have Dr. Laura Sanger back here with us. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always great to be with you. Absolutely. I know it's very timely. What we're going to be talking about is such an important topic right now. You had brought up identifying and breaking the strongholds. And that's such a relevant thing right now. There's so many Christians that are dealing with bondage and just strongholds in general. Yeah. It's just such an honor to, you know, have you in prayer about this and hearing the Holy Spirit. And now here we are recording this edification for the body of Christ? Well, as you say, I just, I'm excited to be able to do this because, you know, I've walked through this in my own life, you know, how to identify strongholds and tear those down, you know, over my thinking, over patterns in my life. And, you know, as I was praying about what the Lord had for this episode, this is what he nudged me with. So I pray that it's encouraging for others as well. It's so encouraging for me because so much has been going on behind the scenes with October just passing. It was such a dark month, the attacks and the air was just thick. And a lot of people were praying through that. Why don't you just start us off, Laura, with what is in your heart to share with us? Yeah. So I think a good place to start is really to understand that iniquity actually opens the door for strongholds to be established in our life. And I thought I would differentiate between sin and iniquity in case people are unfamiliar with what iniquity is. So essentially, iniquity is a pattern of sin, and it comes out of this place of having a depraved mind. You know, we think about sin as missing the mark, right? Um, Well, iniquity actually comes from a heart set on evil ambition. Another way I like to describe it is, you know, if you think about sin like this strand of yarn, well, iniquity is strand upon strand woven together to form this thick cord. And I'll give some examples of iniquity. Now, certainly this isn't an an exhaustive list, but this will um, give people an idea of what I'm talking about. So iniquity would be, you know, any sort of addiction we might have, sexual addictions, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, you know, when there's violence involved in relationships, so domestic violence, abuse of children, elder abuse, 
Um, certainly adultery, lawlessness, even deceptive business practices, um, you know, can be a form of iniquity. And then also, you know, any sort of sexual perversion, idolatry, broken covenants, and even bloodshed. Those are all um, examples of iniquity. So if these things happen, if these things are committed, um, you know, in a community, for example, what can happen is that can open a door uh, for the enemy to really gain a foothold in a particular territory. And if that foothold is not dealt with, so if those iniquities are not dealt with through repentance, then what happens is that foothold can become a stronghold. And so I want to describe what a stronghold is and kind of look at some of the definition in uh, um, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for stronghold, because that will give us a greater understanding of what this is. So Absolutely. essentially, you know, what a stronghold does um, is it forms this net that entraps people. And the Hebrew word for stronghold is matsud, and it means a net, it means to capture castle, defense, fortress, to be hunted, a snare, and a strong place. And it actually comes from the root word sued, which means to lie in wait, to chase, to take provision. And what's interesting about this root word is there's actually a figurative meaning that actually describes someone who lies in wait to catch a human, as in human trafficking. And so it's used to describe someone who entraps another person with the intent to exploit for personal gain. Now, another way to think about a stronghold is if you think about like a fortified city, for example, and if we, we think about Jericho, you know, Jericho had this impenetrable wall that really controlled the flow of who came and went in the city. And, you know, these principalities, rulers, powers, you know, spiritual forces of darkness, they look for ways to establish strongholds because what they want to do is they want to take our territory and they want to enslave us and lock us up in chains. So we have to understand that strongholds are strengthened by individual, by corporate, and then generational iniquity. So one of the things that I, I don't think many people understand is that they're there can both be strongholds over city, states, regions, and nations, but also strongholds over our minds. And so the strongholds that are over territories literally affect the people living there. And so people can develop strongholds in their thinking that's directly connected to the strongholds of the region. Wow. And so that's really an important thing because you might like you might move somewhere and not understand that there's a stronghold over that region and you come under that and all of a sudden it begins affecting your thoughts, your behaviors, your relationships. And I want to give um, just some biblical example of this so people can understand where this comes from. And if we think about when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, the 10 spies came back with a report that was filled with fear. And this is from Numbers 13, verse 28. They said, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. What's happening here is these 10 spies, they were filled with fear and intimidation when they went onto the land of Canaan. And that actually was the pervading attitude of the Canaanites. So the Canaanites had stewarded their land in such a way that strongholds were established of fear and intimidation. So when people came onto their land, they were filled with that fear and intimidation. 
And that's what affected the report that the 10 spies gave to the Israelites. Now, Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, they were not swayed by the stronghold over the land of Canaan. They were able to see the situation through the eyes of the Lord. And that's what allowed Caleb to be able to say in Numbers 13.30, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Caleb and Joshua, they were taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. because they did not come under that stronghold over the territory, which I think is so beautiful. Now, another definition of a stronghold that that might help us is one that's um, given by an author. His name is Tom White, and he wrote A Believer's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. And what he says a stronghold is, is he says it's an entrenched pattern of thought, ideology, or behavior that's contrary to the will of God. And so here's where it emphasizes, you know, that a stronghold can be developed in our thinking. And this is what I really want to focus on today. Not so much the strongholds over territories, but the strongholds that can be over our our mind. Because we should never underestimate the power of our thinking. And I alluded to this passage just a minute ago, but I love 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5, which says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Well, when you take that passage and then you consider epigenetics, so what we know from epigenetics is that our behavior and our lifestyle choices actually affect our body, soul, and spirit, as well as our future generations. So for those that aren't as familiar with epigenetics, um, the prefix epi, it means on top of. So essentially epigenetics is a set of instructions that sits on top of the human genome. Then there's also these things called epigenetic marks, which act like switches that can turn on or off our genes. So it can alter our genetic expression. Now, one of the books that I absolutely love um, reading and trying to understand epigenetics is a book by Dr. Carolyn Leaf, and it's called Switch on Your Brain. And she explains it this way. She says, the sins of parents create a predisposition, not a destiny. So our choices, again, those are epigenetic signals. Our choices can alter the expression of genes, which is epigenetic markers, and that can then be passed on to our children and grandchildren, ready to predispose predispose them before they're even conceived. So essentially, our bad choices become their bad predispositions. Well, the beautiful thing about this passage in 2 Corinthians 10 is Paul understands the power of our thinking. And that's why he encouraged us to take every thought captive and make sure that it aligns with the mind of Christ, because our thoughts literally can alter our genetic expression. And then that makes us susceptible to disease and illness. So when we think about it in light of that, you know, it's really critical to our well-being that we perceive and interpret reality through the mind of Christ, also with the direction of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you know, we're really just susceptible 
to our thinking becoming influenced by, you know, culture or even religious traditions. And then those strongholds that go unchecked, they actually can become hereditary factors that will alter generations to come. And this is where generational iniquity ties into strongholds. And this is really what I want to hone in on, because I think so many of us have those generational iniquities that run in our family line. And, you know, we come under that same type of thinking or behaviors as what our our parents did or our grandparents and so forth. And so I want to share examples of how, first of all, we can identify this, but then how we can break free from it. And the best biblical example that I have found is actually in the book of Esther. And so um, for those that aren't familiar, Haman um, was one of the bad guys (laughs) in the book of Esther. And he developed this deep-seated hatred for Mordecai. And Mordecai was the cousin of Esther. And he raised Esther because Esther was orphaned as a child. Well, Haman hated Mordecai. And on the surface, you know, it seemed that this hatred was because Mordecai refused to bow before Haman. Haman um, rode through the streets of Persia on a, on a horse and everyone was to bow before him. But Mordecai refused to do that. And so, you know, you think from the story that that's why Haman hates Um, Mordecai so much, but it actually runs much deeper than that. And this is where the concept of generational iniquity ties in. So Haman was an Agagite and Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin. So let me describe the Agagites. Essentially, they come from King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites during the reign of Saul. Now, the Amalekites come from Amalek, and Amalek was the grandson of Esau. So I'll tie all this together. So Esau had a son named Iliaphaz, and Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. And Timnah bore Iliaphaz's son, and they named him Amalek. Well, what's interesting about this is the Horites are actually listed in Genesis 14, among a tribe of giants, Um, but it's not thought that they themselves were a tribe of giants, but more that they intermingled with the giants, meaning they interbred. So they were spreading the hybrid race. So when you think about that with Amalek having, you know, his mother being a Horite, it's possible that he had the Nephilim genes within him. And one thing we know for sure is that Amalek inherited the deep-seated hatred that Esau had towards Jacob. And, you know, throughout the generations, what happened is the descendants of Esau um, and the descendants of, of Jacob, that hatred that was between them, the strife really intensified throughout the generations. And it made the Amalekites one of Israel's worst enemies. So then you fast forward years later and God commanded King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And this is in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. He says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So if we consider some of these phrases in this passage, the the Hebrew phrase for utterly destroy is the word haram. And not only does it mean to completely destroy, but it means to exterminate or devote for destruction. And I've always kind of wondered about this, like why, why would God have Saul kill the infant and nursing child? Like what did they do? You know, 
But when we understand that it was tied to the fact that there was the mixing of species, it makes sense. So haram essentially was this term that denoted Yahweh's absolute disdain for particular acts of sin, uh, most of which were the mixing of species, as I mentioned. And so when he commanded Haram, he was calling for punishment by total annihilation. And that was because there was that, that mixing of species. So when God commanded Saul to Haram the Amalekites, it most likely was for two reasons. You know, one, they were merciless in their attack of Israel as they came out of Egypt, but then also they were defiling the human genome by interbreeding with the giants. So here's where it becomes really interesting and it all ties together. So Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, like Mordecai. Now there's two things to note about Saul. One is that his father Kish was known as a Gabor. And the second is that Saul was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. So the Hebrew word Gabor means mighty one, and it's often used to describe giants in scripture. So here we have a clue in scripture that Saul's DNA had the genetic mutation of the hybrids. He essentially had the Nephilim genes. Now, I go into much more detail on this in my book, The Roots of the Federal Reserve, but what God was doing here when he commanded Saul to annihilate the Amalekites is he was testing Saul. He was testing him. Would he align with the seed of Eve or would he align with the seed of Satan? And we find out from 1 Samuel 15 that he decided to preserve King Agag's life rather than completely annihilating the Amalekites. So essentially, Saul chose to align with the seed of Satan. And what's interesting is Josephus, who is um, a Jewish historian, he, he tells us why Saul did this. He said he also took Agag, the enemy's king captive, the beauty and tallness of whose body he admired so much that he thought him worthy of preservation, giving way to human passions. He preferred the fine appearance of the enemy to the memory of what God had sent him about. So here what we see is Saul, he did not walk in the fear of the Lord. He walked in the fear of man and he gave in to the whims of his fancy, you know, by preserving King Agag's life. In other words, what Saul did is he preserved someone with a defiled genome. And here's where we learn just this really important concept about generational iniquity. That which we don't deal with as a seed, we'll have to deal with as a tree. So because Saul did not completely annihilate the Amalekites, you know, by preserving King Agag's life, King Agag's seed lived on. So back to the story of Esther, Haman was a descendant of Agag. Oh my gosh. So when Saul chose to walk in disobedience to what the Lord had commanded him to do, generations later, Esther and Mordecai had to deal with Haman. Now, in the story of Esther, Haman convinced King Xerxes, you know, that to issue this death decree over the Jews, and they were supposed to um, be slaughtered on the 13th day of Adar. Well, when this death decree was issued, of course, Esther was faced with a choice. You know, would she, would she give in to fear or would she rise to the occasion? And Mordecai made her, her choice very clear. And this is in Esther 14, or excuse me, Esther 4, verses 13 through 14. It says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So here Esther, you know, she was faced with this choice. Was she going to seize the opportune moment that God had positioned her for, or was she going to give in to fear of man? And it really, you know, when you think about it, it was no small decision because in that culture, to go uninvited before the king meant certain death. But Esther was willing to risk her life to be that pathway of deliverance for her people. And so she she literally confronted Haman's plot in front of King Xerxes. And when she did that, the king ordered Haman to hang on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And I absolutely love this story because it's a story of complete turnaround. So not only, you know, did Haman hang on his own gallows, but Haman's position in the royal court was given to Mordecai, as was his estate. And then the Jews were allowed to defend themselves on the 13th day of Adar. So anyone that attacked them, they were able to defeat them and actually capture their wealth. And so when you think about the big picture, what Haman meant for, you know, the destruction of the Jewish people actually led to triumph and prosperity. And it was retribution for the years the Amalekites had plundered Israel. So the beautiful thing about this story is that Mordecai and Esther, they were able to break that generational iniquity off the tribe of Benjamin that had been committed by Saul. You know, Saul, as a Benjamite, he walked in the fear of man and he honored King Agag above God. But Mordecai walked in the fear of the Lord and he refused to bow and honor Haman before God. And so what happened is Mordecai, by walking in the opposite spirit, he was able to break off that generational iniquity tear down that stronghold that was in the thinking over the tribe of Benjamin, and he cleansed the bloodline. And so I want to give people just five points um, of how you can break free from generational iniquity. First, we want to confess. You know, we want to confess the ways that we have perpetuated the generational iniquity. And then second, we want to renounce it, which means you know, we declare that we will no longer lay claim to this iniquity. The third thing we do is we need to repent. Repent not only for ourselves, but on behalf of those in our family line that have opened the door to this iniquity. And this is called uh, identificational repentance. And it's actually modeled for us by Daniel in Daniel chapter nine, for people that want to understand that more. And then the fourth thing is if that generational iniquity has opened the door to demonic oppression, then we need deliverance. We need to be set free from demonic oppression and break that generational iniquity. And then lastly, we want to be able to walk in the opposite spirit. Yes. So in a nutshell, that's how we can identify and tear down strongholds in our life. I'm sitting here thinking, why is the church at large not going through this systematically? And the way you tied it together, there's so many things that came to mind. When you were talking about um, the area being under like the stronghold and the bondage, what I wrote down was the people rejoice when righteous rulers are in charge, but the people mourn when the wicked rule. And then when you started to talk about 
the individual, our mindsets um, as as an individual person, what was coming up in my heart was a small disobedience leads to these large problems over time. Yes. Um, then wisdom comes at the fear of God, and we can see Mordecai. <clears throat> he had the wisdom to fear God, and when everything looked like it was going to fall apart and and not work, his trust and faith in God preserved him. And I believe Esther, at one point, she was told before she was, uh, it was mentioned that she was placed in the palace for a time such as this, that God would find another if she would not choose. Yes. And it, mm -hmm. it just reminds me of like, God always has a backup plan. Like he is on the throne and this life is like a voting booth choices are decisions and the way you broke down the generational iniquity and the epigenetic markers that get passed on these strongholds that so many people are wondering why am i praying why am i fasting why am i calling out to god but i'm still being attacked the church needs to deal with these topics so it is an honor to be able to have you here to edify me personally <laughs> but just to bring up that so the listeners understand originally i had asked laura to talk about the armor of God for this ease of edification episode. And, and we agreed. And a, a few weeks later, she texts me and said, Hey, I'm being nudged here by the Holy Spirit. And you told me what you wanted to talk about. And I literally, I said, yes. And yes, <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I responded at one point, I said, I want to weep a combination of joy and fear, a mystery mm -hmm. unfolding in these terrible times. And your response, you said, these are both the worst of times and the best of times. We were born for such a time as this. Amen. <laughs> it's one of those things that like everything leading up to that just ramped up. I personally got sick. My mind was under attack through the end of October here. And mm. I was spending time with God just going, Lord, why? What is going on? Like, I know that I'm desiring the peace of the Lord. I know that nothing can remove me from his hand, but God, why do I feel like things flying overhead are just allowed to drop bombs on me from time to time, you know? Mm, yeah. And it's just so important personally for me, Laura. And I know that just based upon um, the dialect I have with local people here in Southeastern Pennsylvania, this message, it is imperative for the body of Christ to hear this and then for pastors to just Walk in the fear of the Lord. Show yourself approved through fear and trembling, mm -hmm. working out your salvation with God that we would understand what the scripture says, be able to tie this together. We should be on the front line, the body of Christ. We should be on the cutting edge of encouraging each other and going into these topics. Amen. Laura, it is an honor. Thank you so much. You've edified me. I know you're going to edify the listeners. <laughs> oh, good. Good. I'm deeply encouraged. And for those of your listeners, I don't have time, you know, right now to go over my story of how I broke generational iniquity, but I have told that story on a different podcast. And so if you want to hear my story, um, you can just reach out and email me and I'll send you the link to that podcast. Tell the listeners where they can find you to reach out to get that recommendation. And also, if you just want to close out with any contact for just listeners outside of wanting to know that testimony, where they can find you and what you got going on recently. Absolutely. So the best place to start is my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. And then, you know, you can email me through there at contact at no longer enslaved.com. And 
we will, you know, I'll send you the link to um, any podcast you want to see. But anyways, on my website are all my articles that I write, my videos, podcasts that I've done. I'm on YouTube. Um, I have a series on YouTube and Rumble. I'm under No Longer Enslaved. And I just finished a seven-part series called Transformation Through Spiritual Mapping. I also have a 10-part series called The Impact of the Nephilim Agenda Today. And so if you want to dive deeper into any of the things that I talk about, that's a good place to start is my YouTube channel um, or Rumble. And then, of course, my book is The Deep Dive into All These Matters, and that's called The Roots of the Federal Reserve, and that's available on Amazon, but also on my website. And then I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram and Telegram under Laura Sanger at 444 Hertz, and you can find me that way as well. I'm edified. I know that you guys are edified as well from this short speak piece here, pun intended. Edification is easy. Let's continue this process. Coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania, God bless America. Goodbye.